Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Raymond, and uh, thank you, Christ Church, for having me uh, tonight to do this long, long-form forum into this uh, very, very relevant topic that touches all of us in one way or, or another. I'm going to begin this subject tonight uh, with a brain teaser. I think you're up for it, but you have to wake up and think a little bit, okay? So you have two children, a boy and a girl, on a park bench. The child with the blonde hair says, I'm a girl. The child with the brown hair says, I'm a boy. We also know that at least one of them is lying, okay? So here's the question. Which one of these is a girl and which one is a boy? That's the brain teaser. <laughs> Who can tell me by hair color? Again, you have two children, one boy, one girl, sitting on a park bench. The one with blonde hair says, I'm a girl. The one with brown hair says, I'm a boy. At least one of them is lying. Can you tell me who is the boy and who is the girl? Yes. Correct. The blonde hair is a boy and, and the brown hair is a girl. Sorry, we aren't up to the book giveaway yet, but that was a great answer. <laughs> now, you think about it and you say, wait, how can you tell that? Well, think about it. If one of them is lying, the other one must be lying also because you have one boy and you have one girl. So if one is lying and saying, oh, and the one saying I'm a boy is really a girl, then the one saying a girl must really be a boy because that's the other one. And so this is sort of a, a primer for us about gender because this, this brain teaser is sort of like the way that gender is. Gender is something that God gives us a gift in relationship. And you need one gender for the other gender as well. So gender is like this. This brain teaser is also sort of like the way gender is. He's just too cute, isn't he? Because uh, at first you might hear something like that and you might think, I, I don't think there's an answer to that question. I don't think you can come up with an answer for that question. But it turns out there is an answer, just like there is in the park bench question. There's an answer to the questions that we have about gender, and they come from the scriptures. And they, the scriptures can clarify these things for us if we take the scriptures seriously and we go in the direction that they direct us. So I want to try to get us into it this morning by um, telling you three stories about my early ministry, the reason I'm standing here tonight in front of you. Um, the first has to do with a process that a church was going through in Manhattan to get a pastor. And, you know, when churches need a pastor, they have this thing that they go through. They form a pulpit committee, and they go through this process, and all these things, and eventually they have the person, the candidate, come preach a sermon, and then usually after that, maybe there's a Q&A. And so I was a part of one of these processes for candidating. We call them candidating. I was candidating for this church. And so I came, and I preached a sermon for the church, and it went well. Uh, things were good. And then afterwards, they did have a Q&A, and most of the questions were really fun. You know, they asked me things like, you know, what's your baseball team? And it's like real softball questions. It was great. Everything was going well until the middle of a group, 
this young woman stood up, this lovely young woman, and she said, listen, I know that we've, I've been coming to this church and we sing this song in this church, just as I am, without one plea. Jesus accepts me. You know that song, right? So they were singing this song in this church, and he said, we sing this song in this church. Well, I'm a lesbian, and I want to know if you become pastor of this church, will I be accepted in this church just as I am? Okay, so well, that changed the tenor of the Q&A. In fact, you could hear a pin drop. What was the potential pastor going to say to this? How was he going to answer this? How was he going to field this question? And it was at that moment, friends, that I recognized that we need something in the church, that we need something deeper than sometimes that we have. What we need to help us in engaging the culture is a theology of gender. Okay, that's the first story. Okay, next story. Not long after this, I was in my office and having a session, kind of a counseling session with a member of a congregation who had come in to talk to me. And he was being very brave because he had come in to, to confess to me that the friend he had been attending services with um, was actually more than a friend. It was his partner and somebody he had been in a same-sex relationship with um, for about a year and a half. And he was just coming to tell me this and tell me how important this relationship was for him. And it was very difficult for him because the church was always very, also very important to him. And he knew our policy, that uh, the policy we had as a church, that we don't believe that monogendered relationships is what I call them. Monogendered relationships are God's will for those who are following Christ, that God asks us to reserve our closest relationships to be intergendered. And so he was just trying to tell me, see where we could get. And so I appreciated him. You know, we, uh, we had a good friendship. Um, but I said, look, I opened the Bible, went to a few different verses. I said, this is what this is what the Bible seems to say. This is what our policy is. And I remember his eyes looking at me, pleading with me when he said, can you meet me halfway, Sam? Can, can you explain why this is, that this would be? And I couldn't. I didn't have it for him. And that was another moment in ministry when I began to think about what was needed, and I realized that what, what I needed, what the church often needs, is a theology of gender. That's story number two. Third story, not long after that, I was giving a sermon in, in a, in, to my congregation, and I, we came to, we were preaching through a book, and we came to one of these New Testament passages that seems to limit or restrict what women do in the church. And I really wanted to really get at this issue. So I studied really hard. I consulted a lot of commentaries, and I wrote a really good sermon. And I just want you to know, this was a really good sermon, okay? <laughs> and I, I illustrated it really well. I made sure, I, I gave it to my wife ahead of time, made sure I was sensitive to women's concerns. And then I went forth, and I gave this really good sermon. This, this isn't actually me in the picture. That's John Knox. Uh, preaching in Scotland. But that's how I felt, you know, because it, it really was a really good sermon, you know. And so I delivered my really good sermon. This is how I pictured myself. You know, women were fainting and, you know, men were engaged. The clergy was upset, you know. 
That's how I thought. And I thought, it gave this really good sermon. Well, front and center, right after the sermon, right here, this is the way it was. And this um, woman is standing there, and she's an important woman in the church. She's the head of our nursery ministry and a real pillar in the church, a great gal. And she was standing there to talk to me right after the sermon. So I thought, well, now she's going to tell me also that this was a really good sermon, right? So I stepped down to talk to her. First words out of her mouth. First words out of her mouth. This doesn't help me. And I said, yeah, but it, it was a really good sermon, though. Like, you know, was, she said, this doesn't help me. This doesn't help me one bit. Telling me what I cannot do doesn't move me one inch toward what, knowing what I should do in the church, what I, what I can be, what, I, what God wants me to be doing as a woman in the church. More importantly, it doesn't help me understand what it means to be a woman in the Lord. What does it mean to be feminine in the Lord? It doesn't help me. And I said to her, you know, you are absolutely right. And that was another moment when I realized that I needed something. What did I need? You tell me. Theology of gender. That's right. So these are three of some very, of many ministry moments early in my ministry that kind of focused me on this issue. And I, I was pastoring in New York City, and these issues were coming up again and again. And so it forced me to go on this journey about this issue. And there are many pastors that are better pastors than I am. But God had a way of kind of putting this in front of me and forcing the issue. And so many of the questions that are on people's lips today, so many of the questions that people are asking, what's a real man? What makes a true woman? You know, does the Old Testament and the Old Testament, are, are men supposed to be superior to women? Does the Bible tell me to submit to my husband as in decision-making when I'm a better decision-maker than him? Should our church have a woman pastor, you know? Or if I, even if I have a boy body, but I, I feel like a woman, should I transition? So many of these different questions. My, my question I got a lot, you know, my girlfriend, is, I thought, was supposed to be nurturing, but how come she isn't? You know, I thought boys were supposed to be the ones good at math, so how come my cousin, who's a woman, is a nuclear physicist? All these different questions. They all come down to the same thing. They all boil down to what is gender? What does it mean? And what I'm going to argue for tonight is that there are solid biblical principles to help us understand and answer these questions. And it's a theology of gender. It actually gives us practical guidance in these conundrums. And if we don't have this, friends, then we aren't able, if we just say, okay, well, we can go to these few proof texts, we aren't able to show and to see and to understand for ourselves why these commands are good that God gives us. And we lack a positive vision for what God is doing in giving us this gift. And we aren't able to address our culture in the ways that it needs to be addressed. Because gender is not a problem, friends, and it's not just a list of prohibitions. In fact, it's a beautiful gift that God has given us to foster creativity, intimacy, and fruitfulness in our relationships, to take us deep. It's a precious present that is revealing of God's very self 
So what I want to say tonight is that God's Word has these answers. And we're going to work through a little framework tonight to help you answer these questions. And to do that, one of the things we're going to be doing is giving away these books. Now, I'm not as nice as Pastor Raymond, right? He just gives away books. I like to make you work for them. Okay, so I like to have some fun by asking you some questions. So if you're here and you haven't been disqualified in any of those categories that he mentioned, and you read your Bible and you want to win a free book, and this one actually comes with a study guide I have with it, I'm going to ask you a Bible question, and the first person who can raise their hand and give me, a, give me the correct answer will win a book, okay? And uh, what I'm looking for is, in this question, is the name of the book and the chapter, okay? So the name of the book and chapter. All right, so here it is. Here's the question, and I'll try to see who raises their hands in what order, so give me some mercy here, but here's, here's the question. What's the longest passage in the New Testament about marriage? Longest passage, wow, that was, yes. Ephesians 5, that's a beautiful passage about marriage, very lofty, but it's the wrong answer. Yes. First Corinthians 7, can we have a hand for this guy? Excellent. Well done. 1 Corinthians 7, actually, the longest passage in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament about marriage, which is interesting because it's actually a passage about not being married. You know, if you, uh, if you hold up Ephesians 5 in one hand and 1 Corinthians 7 in the other, you'll find that 1 Corinthians 7 is, is for Ephesians 5 is where Paul says, oh, marriage is the greatest thing on earth. It's so lofty. It's amazing. It's Christ in the church. 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul saying, well, you know, marriage is pretty good, but actually singleness, uh, it's kind of better. <laughs> and that's the longest passage we have about marriage in the New Testament. Very interesting for those of us who are single. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look for biblical principles about gender. And I'm going to give you seven tonight. I think in the time that we have, probably get through about five uh, in detail as I, that, I'll, that I'll lay out for you. I'll give you the other two, but we're, I really do want to develop and kind of Pastor Ray and I talked about what, what would be good to spend time on here, these first five. How are we going to get these biblical principles? Well, what we're going to do is go to the definitive kind of passage about gender uh, that is given to us by the Apostle Paul, where he really lays things out. But before we get there, I got to say, you probably know this. If you've heard people speak on this before or if you've read things about it, you know that everybody eventually ends up in the same place in trying to explain gender or gender relations or men or women or masculinity and femininity. Where do they end up? They usually end up, they always end up really in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Where it says we're where we're created, gives us the story. So we all end up back there. The problem is, if you've read anything about this, you know that when people get there, they argue about what's important in that passage. You have the, the first chapter, which men and women are created. Then you have a second chapter that sort of explains it in detail. And people argue about, well, what's important? Is it the fact that Adam, Adam was there with the animals before Eve? Is it the fact that, you know, it says you will have, you will, uh, your, husband, your desire will be for your husband? What's the important phrase? And people argue about what fact is important or what phrase is important, what word is important. And that's the difficulty we have. What does it mean? 
Well, you can rest assured tonight, you can just relax, because actually I'm going to tell you what's important in the passage. I'm going to tell you what's important in Genesis 1 and 2. And you say, well, uh, I'm sure you're not saying, oh, great, he's going to tell me what's important. You're probably saying, how do you know what's important? Well, I know it's important because someone else actually has read Genesis 1 and 2, and he tells us what's important, and that's the Apostle Paul. So, we start out with Moses, and uh, he gives us his account in Genesis 1 and 2. But then we get the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, at various points in his writings, refers to the Genesis passage and tells us what he says is important in it. And it's always great when you have one person in the Bible reading another part of the Bible and telling you what's important. We call that intertextuality. When that happens, it's great because it tells us how to interpret. And Paul, especially in his quintessential passage on gender, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, explains what's important in those first two chapters. So what we're going to do is we're going to take Paul and we're going to read what he says about Genesis 1 and 2. And so to do that, I am going to ask for a reading of this passage. And the whole passage is 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, if you have your Bible. But we're just going to read up to verse 12. Now, do we have someone to read? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Will you please read that passage for us? Thank you. I command you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well read. All right. We're not going to get to probably every question you might have about that passage. There are a lot of questions that come up from that. But you can ask them in, in the Q&A if you want. We've, we've kind of arranged this so that there is going to be a time for questions afterwards. So as I'm going, I ask you to write down the questions that you have. Because if you get through this next hour and you don't have any questions on what I've said, you're probably not breathing. Uh, <laughs> Just this topic, is, it, it's just impossible not to have questions about. And so I'm not going to get to everything in the passage, but if you want to ask it, be welcome. And I really do want to have your questions. And you probably might forget them because we're covering a lot of material. So I encourage you to just write them down as we go so you can have them. I really do want to hear them at the end. 
But we're going to use this passage as our kind of anchor for these different principles, even though the principles can be explained from many different parts of Scripture, and we, we might uh, jump around. But here's the first principle, I would say, the first thing that we get from reading the Bible about gender. The divine persons of the Holy Trinity know and experience the archetype of intimacy and fruitfulness. Okay? Now, I put it in quotes here on the, on the uh, slide because um, we call it intimacy and we call it fruitfulness. What we know about God is a little bit veiled because his greatness is unsearchable and he dwells in unapproachable light. But he has a great desire for us to know him in the ways that we can as a creature. And so the first principle is to notice is that intimacy, what we know as intimacy and fruitfulness, is something of what the members and persons of the Trinity actually share among themselves. Where could we see this in our passage? Well, if you look at that part at the end of, the, of what was read, where in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is born of woman. All things are from God. If you look at that phrase, all things are from God. It's actually very simple in the Greek. What it says, literally, is panta ek theu. That is, all things are out of God. Not just that he gives us these things as a gift, but the things that, that Paul is talking about, masculinity, femininity, man and woman, it actually, says Paul here, comes out of God. Same, same word for what the woman, as the rib, comes out of man. Paul is saying these things come out of God. So this is one of the places to see what we are as gendered beings is very deep. So where can we see these different places? You can look in different places and see that God is enjoying intimacy and fruitfulness within his very self. Um, there are different places we can go. Uh, I like to go to Proverbs 8, which shows us there are different what we might call prosopological conversations between persons of the Trinity to show us. But I think the, that we'll do it, uh, the one we'll do tonight is John 14. This is one of the most tender moments in the Gospels between Jesus and his disciples. It's at the Last Supper. And John 14 through 17 gives us the, the account, the conversation, the dialogue, the, the discourse at the Last Supper between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is telling them some very important things. Right? He's telling them about what's going to happen, what they're like, what he's like. But the only thing that the disciples seem to hear in what he tells them is that he's going away. And that's the thing they react to. You're leaving. And he picks up on that, and so he's responding to them. He said a lot of different things. They've understood he's leaving them. They're upset. This is what he says to them in John chapter 14, verse 28. He said, you heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, this verse has been hugely important in the history of Trinitarian theology, and it's been debated ad infinitum. 
because of that thing that Jesus says there. I'm going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And so theologians debate about this back and forth. What does this mean? Is this about subordination? No, it can't be because they're equal persons of the Trinity, and on and on and on and on, on. Okay, fine. You know, we do have to talk, talk, think about the Trinity. You do have to figure out what we can know about the Trinity from what's revealed. Fine, fine. But if you go that route, you kind of miss what Jesus is saying. You kind of miss the main thrust, the first thing that Jesus is saying. You know, this is one of these rare uh, moments where we actually learn what Jesus is going through. You read through the Gospels and you're getting Jesus very much, you know, what is Jesus always doing? He's focusing on what other people are going through, what they're thinking, what their experience, what, what, you know, the effect the thing is having on them. This is one of these rare places where we actually see what Jesus is feeling, what Jesus, how it's affecting him. And it's kind of a moment, I guess it's at this supper, he's relaxed. He allows himself a moment, if I can say this, where he gives us some insight into what he's thinking, what he's going through. And there's no way to avoid the logic of what he's saying. He's saying, if you really loved me about my going away, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm getting to go back to the Father. And the Father is just so great. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to get to go back to be with him. And it's just so great. He's looking through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. He's saying, I get to return to be with him, and he's just so great. That's the first thing he's saying. That's the intimacy that they have. You know, the persons of the Trinity are sort of like what happens when a friend of yours gets engaged. How many of you have ever been in a friendship where a friend of yours got engaged and it really upset your relationship, your friendship, because the person always was focused on this other person they're engaged with? How many ever? Anybody ever had that problem? Nobody. Oh, someone? Okay. I mean, I see it a lot when I marry people. You know, when people get engaged, a lot of times the, the, the relationships around them are, are disrupted because uh, the, the, the person is saying, uh, the person who got engaged is saying, I never have enough time with this other person. You know, and their friends are saying, uh, you're with him all the time. You know, you're with her all the time, you know. It's kind of annoying. This is sort of the way Jesus is sometimes. When, we when he starts talking about the Father, it's like, it's like if you're looking at someone you just adore being with and want to be back with, you know, it even relativizes death, apparently, um, for Jesus. So that's just an example. You can look at these in different places of the intimacy and fruitfulness that they have, that God's persons have within themselves. That's principle number one. Principle number two Gender is a gift of being made in the image of God, okay? Actually, before we do that, let me give away another book, okay, to introduce us to this one. Okay, here's my next question. This one's a simpler question, all right? Again, firsthand with the right answer. In the New Testament, is Jesus Christ compared to a husband or a wife? In the New Testament, is Jesus Christ compared to a husband or a wife? Yes? Husband is a good answer, but it's wrong. Is Je yes. <laughs> Another good answer, but that's also wrong. In the New Testament, Jesus is compared to husband or wife. What's the correct answer? What's that? 
ahead. Well, that's true too, but that's not quite the answer. Yes? Both is the answer. Can we have a hand for this guy? It was a trick question. I mean, yeah, it's very interesting, you know. In Ephesians 5, we know Jesus is compared with a husband, right? In relationship to the church, right? Love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? In the passage we just read, we saw Jesus is compared with a wife in relation to the first member of the Trinity. And so what we see here in 1 Corinthians 11.3 is that Paul makes this comparison. He makes this metaphor. Now again, as I said, God dwells in unapproachable light. His greatness is unsearchable. So we cannot know the inner life, really, of God. But he gives us these metaphors so that we would know him. And this is one of the metaphors that Paul says is there, that somehow husband and wife is a metaphor for what goes on inside of God. Now, where did Paul get this from? Where did he get this from? Again, we go back to where Paul is reading, and that is in Genesis. Genesis 1, famous verse, you know it. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, have you, have you ever read that verse and wondered what it was that made the image of God? Have you ever read that and said, what, is it, what really does it mean to say that we're made in the image of God? What is it that makes us different on the one hand from the animals and on the other hand from the angels? What is it that gives us the image? How are we imaging God? Have you ever wondered that? Anybody ever wondered that? Yeah, okay. Well, if you've ever wondered that, you're not alone. Actually, many people have wondered that down through history. Even before the Christian era, you know, the rabbinical, um, the rabbinical scholars. But certainly in the Christian era, many people have tried to answer that and wrestle with, what does it mean to say that we're made in the image of God? In fact, there's a whole subject of theology we call theological anthropology to try to understand what does it mean to be made in the image of God. And there are basically three answers. I'm going to categorize everything that people say. I'm, not, I'm painting with very broad brushstrokes. You'll allow me to do that to give you basically three different answers that people have come up with. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? The first answer is very important in the first few centuries of the church are to say that we share in the attributes of God. And I don't know if you can see these, but this is my sort of chart where I made columns of different theologians and all of their lists of the attributes of God. And so the idea here through history, very important, people said, oh, we're the image of God because God is all-powerful. We have some power. You know, God is all-knowing. We know some things. God is merciful, all-merciful, but we have some mercy. You know, you go down through the list. So just as God is these things, some of them are more communicable than others, but in some way, we're in God's image because we, we share in his attributes. Now, if you think about that, that makes sense, right? That kind of sounds like it would be true, right? God is this way, so we're this way. We share in his attributes. And so I would think that there's probably truth to that answer that uh, many, many theologians have said. But other people have gone back and said, you know, 
that's a pretty Greek way of thinking. And probably the original audience that Moses was writing to wasn't thinking about that when they read this passage about being made in the image of God. They probably weren't listing attributes in their mind. Well, God is all-knowing. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. They probably weren't doing that. Well, then what were they doing? And this is the second answer that people have given to what it means to be made in the image of God. You could call this the biblical theological answer. What they have done is gone back and they said, you know, actually what people at the time were probably thinking when they got this, when this was written, was the fact that kings and emperors of that time in the ancient Near East would set up statues of themselves all around their empire. Images, if you would, of themselves. And they multiplied these images geographically and numerically throughout their empire. Why? Because it would tell people, I'm in charge. So they would look at the great Ozymandias, you know, you mighty cast, look, your, look at my works and despair because I'm in charge here. And they, they would set up these images or statues all over their empire to say, who had dominion? They would have dominion. And you can, you can find these archaeologies go through all of these and uh, are, are digging these up all the time. And so the idea here would be what it means to be in the image of God is that we were, we're his images. We're like his statues, only we're upgraded a bit, you know. But people look at us and they say, okay, God's in charge over the earth. And that kind of sounds like what he's telling them right after this in the passage, right? He tells them to go be fruitful and multiply. So that makes sense. And I would say, again, there's probably some truth to that. But there is a third answer. It became especially important in, in the 20th century. And that happened because people went back and looked at what the verse actually says in the verse itself. What does it say? He created us in his image, male and female. And so the third answer that's emerged is that somehow when he made us male and female, he made us to be in relationship. And when we come together, out of those two, a third proceeds. And in light of what we know of God from the New Testament, that God is actually one God, but he is triune. He is three persons in one God. That what seems to be happening here is that God is making us in that image. He's making us plural, and then we come together as one, and from that, a third is produced. And that's exactly actually what God says in the next thing after this. He, he makes them to, to go forth and multiply and have a third. So if this is the case, that this is a way or maybe a particular way in which we are the image of God, I'll tell you, it would make certain things in the next chapter of Genesis make a lot more sense. So if we go this route and then look at the story that explains the actual making of men and women, the creation of gender. What we read about is this story where God says, it's not good that man should be alone, right? This is a story, and if we're taking that as, this is actually how the image comes about. It says, it's not good to just be one. It shouldn't be that he's alone. So I'm going to make a helper fit for him, 
And so he, you know the story, he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He actually brings him to a profound state of rest. And in the Hebrew, the word means really just absolute rest, just rest. And from that rest, he wrenches a, re- a rib from his side, closes up the flesh, makes the woman, brings the woman to him. Now, do you ever wonder why he did it that way? Like, why did God create Eve the way that he created Eve? He could have created Eve all sorts of different ways, right? He could have, after he made Adam, he could have had her, you know, spring whole cloth from the head, you know, like in the Greek mythology. Or he could have first made Eve and then decided she didn't quite, she wasn't good enough, and so then make Adam second. That would be the opinion of Aristotle. But no, he doesn't do any of these other ways. Instead, he chooses this way. Why? Because God is never arbitrary. Why would God do it this way? What was he saying? Well, a man named Gregory Nazianzus in the year 325 AD, one of the most important years in in history, he preached a sermon on this passage. And Gregory Nazianzus said, the reason that God did this, the reason why he did it it this way is to show us that Eve was homoousius with Adam. Eve was of the same substance of Adam. That's why God did it this way. Now, if that word means anything to you, homoousius, then you've got the point. Because that very year, 325 AD, was the year the most important, one of the most important meetings of history took place. That was the Council of Nicaea. And Gregory of Nazianzus and others came together, and it was at that council, the Council of Nicaea, that we decided how it was correct to speak about God, how we should be speaking about God. And specifically, that was the word that they used to describe the first and second member of the Trinity, specifically that Christ was homoousius of the Father, of the same substance. So what Gregory Nazianzus was implying here, that there is a metaphor here for something in God, that what it means to be made in the image of God is to have what they have only as an image. Again, it's a metaphor. But that, of, that which they had when, when God splayed out himself in space and time, became what for us is, is known as gender. This would mean, friends, that God created us to share in the delight that the persons of the Trinity share. That's why history begins and ends with a wedding, because that is what he has. Done. Isn't that what Adam says when he meets her? It's the first thing he says, right? She's bone of my bones. That's, she's of the same substance as me, flesh of my flesh. And that's also why we can see that when God says, I'm going to make this new thing, this new one, she's called the helper. And in Hebrew, that word helper is soon after applied to God. It's especially applied to God and used for God in an expression of his power especially, especially in an apex of an expression of his power, the ultimate expression of his power. 
So what we have God creating here is also divine, the divine in power. So what we have, apparently this is the way Paul is reading Genesis. Eve proceeded from of the same substance as equal to Adam and yet was distinct. They become one and from their union is a third, comes a third. You have to realize that if, if uh, this is what the scriptures are telling us, we have the only robust reason that we have relationships. No other worldview can say what we say as Christians. That the reason that we have relationships goes very much into God himself, God themselves, we could say. Islam can't say this. Judaism can't say this. I mean, they believe that God is one, as do we, but they do not believe, as we do, that there is a plurality in God the way we do. The Eastern monist traditions also can't say this. In Hinduism or Buddhism, the idea is to get away from your relationships. Human relationships are an obstacle to your spirituality. They're something that you have to depart from in order to, to really reach enlightenment, to get past even philosophical materialism can't say this. Secularism, you know, that says the only thing that exists is what we see. And we are all our products simply of random genetic mutations acted on by natural selection. They don't have a reason for, it, for relationships because there really is no good evolutionary explanation for sexual dimorphism. There's no reason why it could come about. It's always very contrived when scientists try to explain why there would be the predecessor even of a relationship. Only Christianity allows us a robust explanation for why we come into relationship and more importantly, why it's so important to who we are as people, why it's so important to our humanity. That is what we're getting here from Moses and from Paul. We're the image of the triune God. That's number two. Okay. Okay, we're doing pretty good. We're going to go on to the third principle now. And I guess I can give another book away. All right, this one's going to be hard. Get ready. Those of you who got tricked in the last question, you're up again. Okay? This one's a little difficult. I think you can do it, though. Here's the question. At a certain point in the Old Testament, God establishes a new covenant with David. You remember David, right? And this covenant, sometimes called a covenant of kingship, because he promises that he will make David his king. But it's actually a covenant of dynasty, because he doesn't just promise that David will become king. He says that there will be a son of David on the throne after David for all generations. So righteous rule through all generations is a covenant of dynasty. Very important moment in history. It's when history shifts forward, when God gives his people a king. He gives them a dynasty. Okay, here's the question. Who's the first person in the Bible to connect David with this promise of dynasty? Promise, wow, in the house. Yes. Say loudly. Actually, no. No, good answer. Who's the first person 
By the way, you can't have read this book already because the answer's in this book. Here else to describe it. Yes, that pretty woman in the back. Not Matthew. Who's the first person who connects David to the dynasty? I'll give it to you again. Not Solomon. Not Isaiah. These are good answers, but yes, I'm sorry, it's in the light. What was that? Jonathan, not Jonathan, actually. Who's the first person who actually connects David with the concept of dynasty or the house of David? Yes. Abraham's a good try, but it's not Abraham. Yes. It is not Micah. Wait, you, let me give this person a try. What was that? Always a good try, Jesus. <laughs> if you're in doubt, say it's Jesus. But it's not Jesus this time. Yes. It is not Samuel. You'd expect it to be Samuel, right? He's the kingmaker. But it's not Samuel. Okay, you get another try. It's not David. Pretty good if it were David. Yes. What's that? Nathan, another good try. It's not Nathan. It's tough, isn't it? The first person, I'll give you a hint, person important to David's life. Yes. What was that? It's not Saul. He was important. It wasn't Saul. Yes, again. Not Bathsheba, but I'll, I'll give you a hint since we're having trouble. You're getting warm. You're getting warm. First person to connect David with this important concept. Yes. Michal? No, it is not Michal. Yes. It is Abigail. Well done. Oh, it's good to see you again. Well done. If you have that already, you can give it to somebody else. It's Abigail, actually, who first tells David, God will make of you a sure house or dynasty. It's Abigail. Very interesting. Like most, just about all the important theological themes in the book of Samuel, they are introduced through the mouth of a woman. And that brings us to the next important principle for us principle of gender, and that is that gender matters in relationship. And this is something that is kind of difficult, I find, for people to actually embrace and get around, because this is not how we think about gender. We think about gender as you, something in isolation, like a man and a woman. Like, you, you, how do you become a man? Like, you could go out into the woods and you cut yourself with stones, and somehow that makes you a man, you know. That's the way we think about gender. But that's not the way the Bible talks about gender ever. The Bible never says, like, these are the essential qualities that make masculinity or make femininity. Instead, what does the Bible do? It talks about gender in relationship. Where do we see it? Well, let's go back to the book. Let's go back to our passage. In the, the last verses that were read, verses 11 through 12, remember it says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as the woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And that phrase, sorry to keep going into the Greek here with you, but it's kind of important. That phrase, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, is very simple in the Greek. The, the translators are trying to like, make it make sense. But what it actually says in the Greek is gune koris andros, that is, 
literally, woman is not without man. Okay, there is not woman without man, nor is man without woman. Okay, woman is not without man. Man is not without woman. I think Paul is saying something very profound here, and that is just like the, on the park bench, those two kids on the park bench, gender is about interaction, first with our own gender, but then also with the other gender. And that is where it is defined. Just as, I won't go into it, but just as among the persons of the Trinity, the only thing that distinguishes them, because they all have the char- characteristics of God equally, The only thing that distinguishes the persons of the Trinity are their relations of origin. So when he splayed out his image in space and time, it came out for us in this way that gender matters in relationship. So where could we see this, for example? uh, In other places, we can see it in the way Jesus talks about marriage. You know, there's this place where, this, where the Pharisees are pushing Jesus up against the ropes with this question of divorce. And finally, Jesus gives him a definition of marriage. And that's in Mark chapter 10. What does he say? <clears throat> From the beginning, God made a male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife. So here Jesus is giving us sort of a, def- a programmatic statement. Again, Jesus, going back to Genesis, reading Genesis, and saying, this is people getting married, okay? But you know, um, Jesus is, um, is a good Bible reader. <laughs> so Jesus has this statement that he makes. He's making a quotation, right, from, from Genesis, and he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife. And he, but he's beginning his quotation with the therefore, and, you know, as a good Bible reader, what do you do when you see a therefore? Do you know that old adage? You go back and see what it's there for, right? You remember that, right? Well, Jesus is a good Bible reader, so he has this therefore, so he has to explain what the therefore is there for, okay? And so he gives another quotation. How many quotations is Jesus making here? It's not one, it's two, right? Because this statement that explains the therefore is from Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, what precedes the therefore is the whole story of the creation of gender. So instead of Jesus giving us the whole story of the creation of gender, he goes back to another passage, which is the summary statement of the creation of gender. In Genesis chapter 1, he made them male and female. And he has to deliberately do this. Jesus himself takes those two passages and puts them together to say, this is the reason that people get married. So you see what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is why people get married, because of gender. And this is why, friends, we can't support, as believers, monogendered marriage. It's not because we hate gay people or we want to exercise power over people or there's nothing to be done if you have same-sex attraction. It's because, according to Jesus, our Lord, this is the reason that people get married. It's because of gender. It's not the only reason for gender. But if people do get married, it's because of gender. It's because God has given this gift to us so we can encounter the other intergendered in our, in our intimate relationships. 
So this helps us, friends. When we, we really get into this principle, when we're willing to talk about gender the way God talks about gender, it helps us to avoid stereotypes so that we don't start um, talking about women and men the way that you know, the, the culture might encourage us to. Like when we say, what is a woman? We think, well, a woman is someone who likes to go shopping, right? Or a woman is someone who likes to do her nails. Or we listen to the celebrity transitioners now, like Ellen Page. is like, why did you want to just, oh, so I could wear my hair short? Like as if that is what makes a man or that's what makes a woman, you know? So you, it's not what makes a woman, these things. You're not a woman because you're afraid of mice, you know? And similarly... We can, we can avoid saying you're not a man, you know, because you're lifting weights or, you know, you like to go hunting, you know, or like you like to go to the hardware store, you know. The Bible never does that. It frees us from doing that because it tells us, no, actually, where gender matters, where you find out your gender is in relationship. So, you know, one time I was preaching a sermon about this, how gender matters in relationship, and Again, you know, right down here where people come to tell me after the sermon how it was. And I was, I, there was this guy who comes out, this young man. We'll call him Dan. He comes up to me and he says, you know, I don't like all this talk about, you know, being in a relationship with women to find out my manhood. You know, I, I don't like all that. I just want to know how to be a man at work. I want to know how to be a man at work. That's what I'm interested in. And I knew what he did. He had a computer job. And so I said to him, honestly, Dan, what you're doing at work doesn't have a lot to do with, with being a man. And I'm not really seeing how it would be different if a woman were doing what you're doing. And he didn't like that answer, so he walked away. <laughs> Immediately after him, a woman came up to me. We'll call her Danielle. And Danielle said to me, listen, I'm an independent woman. I'm making it on my own. I don't need a man to help me know what a woman is. Thank you very much. And I said, just wait a second, Danielle. Let me get Dan back here. So I got Dan and Danielle back together. And I said, I just want you to listen to each other. Because I knew they both wanted to date. I was their pastor. Not each other, but I knew they wanted to date. I said, listen, with, with the way that you're thinking, how easy is it do you think it's going to be to merge your life with another person? This is what God encourages us to do to understand that we find our manhood in the way in which we love women differently. We find our womanhood in the way in which we are loving men differently. So I would just encourage you, if you want to help people, talk to people the way the Bible talks to people. It doesn't talk about just Deborah. It's not just Deborah. It's Deborah and Barak. Okay? It's not just Priscilla. It's Priscilla and Apollos. Right? And it's not just David, it's David and Abigail. That's the, third, that's the third principle. Very good. Okay, coming to the fourth principle now. We're doing pretty good, huh? All right, I think I might have to speed it up, but we do have one more book to give it away. All right, here it is. This might be tricky for you. It's not a trick question, but it might be tricky for you if you haven't thought about it. But it's an important, important question. Here's my question for you. Who can tell me where in the New Testament is a wife encouraged to disobey her husband? 
Where in the New Testament is a wife encouraged to disobey her husband? Yes, in the back. I'm sorry? Um, well, that's a good principle, but I'm looking for actual text. I'm looking for like a, a the name of a book and a chapter, if you can. Name of a book and a chapter, yes. Uh, close. What's the story? I think you're on it. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. Let's give it to her. Very good. Well done. Well done. You remember the story, right? Man comes in, lies to the apostles about a field that he sold, right? He's struck dead because he's actually lying to the apostles about it. What happens? They carry his body out. As soon as they carry his body out, his wife comes in right after him. And Peter asks her the question, are you going to say the same thing that your husband said? What did Peter want her to do? What was it right for her to do? Right? She should, should she obey her husband? No, she should disobey her husband. She should not follow her husband's lead. And it's like what you were saying. The principle is he was asking her to lead, he was leading her into sin. So here's a place where, well, she doesn't actually. She goes and lies like her husband does, and she's struck dead, right? But what did God want her to do? Did God want her to lie about the property? No, he did not. And if she had not lied, would she have been struck dead? Of course not. So this is one of these places that show us, you know, we can talk about headship and things like that, but there are limits to what even that, what we would call headship. Why? Because of this principle, very important, which I guess we have to do quickly. Men and women are equal in bearing God's image. Men and women are equal in bearing God's image. And I guess I, um, if we do it, there's a couple places you could do it in our passage, but I would, I would do it here. When in, the, in the beginning of the passage, you, know, you remember Paul said, I commend you because you maintain the traditions even as I delivered, to the, you, delivered them to you. But I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, etc. So Paul's beginning his passage about gender and men and women in, in worship. And he begins it by commending the Corinthians for holding on to, for maintaining the tradition that he gave them. Well, you ask, what, it, what would it be that Paul has to, is commending them for? He's saying, good job, Corinthians. You've done well. You've held to the traditions that I've established in your church. What, what would Paul be saying? What would be so difficult for them to maintain in light of their culture? Well, there's really, in light of the subject, he's talking about men and women in worship and what they're doing. There's one candidate that makes sense for what Paul is talking about. And that is women praying and prophesying in the service. Why do I say that? Let's say you were a Jew and you converted to Christianity in the first century around Corinth. You came into the church and started going to church. What was your background? Well, your background was the synagogue. And scholars agree that pretty much the New Testament pattern for church 
grew out of, is patterned after the synagogue system that developed during the intertestamental period. And so you're, you're coming in as a Jew. What you would know growing up is the synagogue. Now suddenly you come into the church meeting, and what happens? You see women praying and prophesying. Let me tell you something that never happened in a synagogue service. Women speaking never happened. It wouldn't happen in a synagogue service. So this, if you were a Jew, it would kind of like great on your nerves to come on. This is really different to have a woman speaking, much less praying and prophesying in the, in the service. You say, well, a lot of people in Corinth weren't Jewish. Probably most of the, the church was Gentiles, these, Gentile, these, these God-fearers who converted to Christianity. What if that was your background? Well, if that was your background, then what you were coming out of is the ecclesia. Now, ecclesia in the, in the New Testament is the Greek word for church. But the New Testament writers didn't make that up. They stole it from Greek Roman culture. And in Roman culture, the ecclesia was the community gathering. That's where people would come together and solve their problems and, and uh, have judicial things and such like that. Let me tell you what didn't happen in the ecclesia. Women speaking. So the ecclesia, if you go, you, this is what you grew up with, and now you're coming to the Christian ecclesia, what would be different? Women praying and prophesying. So just, it doesn't matter if you're coming from a Jewish background or a Greco-Roman background. This was different. So Paul begins this passage commending them for maintaining the practice of having women participate in the worship. He's commending them. He's saying, good job, Corinthians. You've held to this even against your culture, which doesn't acknowledge that women are equal. The equality of women. Well, where is Paul getting this from? Again, you go back. It's because Eve was homoousius with Adam, of the same substance, meaning equal, just as members of the Trinity, even though they're distinct, are equal. And so this is an important, again, we could, we could talk more about this, but I've got to move on to the last, um, the last principle. It's something we always want to uh, keep in mind while we are paying attention to number five, the asymmetry. God made us, he made the genders with asymmetry to love each other differently. What do I mean by that? Well, if we go back to our passage, those middle verses, verses 7 through 10, uh, Paul gives us his great kind of uh, statements about the asymmetry of men and women. And in, you know, when they made these documents, there were just blocks of letters because writing materials were very expensive. So they, they didn't use a lot of punctuation. But authors would help us by literary techniques that would show us where they were marking off their thoughts. And what we have in verses 7 through 10 of 1 Corinthians 11 is what we call an inclusio. An inclusio is something that begins with certain thoughts and ends with those same thoughts, maybe even the same words. And that's what we have here is Paul marking off his thoughts. He's, he's giving us his paragraph here. In the beginning, it's what a man ought to not do with his head. At the end, it's what a wife ought to do to have a symbol of authority on our head. So it's about what people ought to be doing with their heads to begin and end. 
this inclusio. And in between there, he gives us three statements about the different ways in which men and women love each other. And if we go through them, the first is woman is somehow the glory of man in an asymmetrical way. The second statement is about man was made from woman, was not made from woman, but woman from man. And the third was they were created for a different purpose. And there are actually three becauses in the Greek. There are three hinas that Paul gives us here. It helps us see he's giving us three reasons. And so if we go back to what Paul is reading in Genesis, we find those three. The first is that men and women, the first man and woman, were created in a different order. Now you say, why does that matter? Who cares what order they're created in? Well, it's because in Moses' culture and in Paul's culture as well, both their cultures, the firstborn was a very important concept. The firstborn was the one who got responsibility and authority for the family. The father's authority passed to the firstborn, and he was responsible for using the resources, the double inheritance, to develop the family and take care so that the other family's gifts would be fought, the other family, others in the family would be taken care of and their gifts would be fostered. So that's an asymmetry. The second one is that they were made differently. And that goes back to the story once again that we already went through, right? That God created this in a certain way. What happened? God brought Adam to a great place of rest. And from that rest, he wrenched out this, this rib. He closed up his flesh. He made the woman. He brings him back to the man. And what happens? The man returns to his rest through the woman coming to him. And so what we have is the woman bringing the man rest. And that's the first thing that Adam says when she gets there. He says, ah, alas. You know, in Hebrew, it's almost like a sigh, you know, coming back to this place of rest. Meanwhile, what is happening on the other side is that Eve comes into the situation. She's not, he's already been there. She doesn't know what's going on. She needs to be secured. And what does Adam do? He secures her with a name. In fact, that's what his name means, Adam. It means the ground, the solid ground one. So he secures her while she brings him rest. Third, they're made for a different purpose. In, in Paul, what Paul says is woman was, uh, man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. And I would just insert there what is implied and what he's saying in the story is for the mission of God, for the work of God. They were created, and Genesis 2 is explicit about this, for a different purpose. The man is first created to be commissioned with the work of the garden. They both, as humanity, are commissioned with taking dominion over the earth in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, the man is commissioned with the work of the garden. The woman, then, is, is the help, remember, that divine empowerer to make the mission happen. So we have these, in Paul's words here, these three great asymmetries. The asymmetry of order, in which we have the, inter, um, the interaction between the firstborn and the promoter. We have the, interact, we have the asymmetry of origin, and that is the interaction between the man of the solid ground and the woman of the, of the resting rib. 
And thirdly, we have an asymmetry of intent. And that is the interaction between the commissioned and the empower. And these are the ways that the Bible gives us. And these are things that Paul brings up throughout his writings. And really, it's throughout the scriptures. You can see the way in which these function between men and women. This is what the scriptures hold out to us, are the ways in which, are the patterns in which we love each other differently, these asymmetries. We're equal, equally sharing the image of God, equally imaging God together, but we love each other differently in these asymmetries. And, um, you know, I think I'm going to maybe call it there. Um, I can give you some applications, if you want, of that. The last two principles that we're not going to get to is that our bodies express the gender of our souls, and gender is a gift to foster intimacy and fruitfulness, just like they have. And so uh, let me finish up by finishing up these stories. You probably wondered what I said to that woman who stood up and said, I'm a lesbian. Will I be accepted here just as I am? Well, I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was I started talking about relationship. I said, you know, if you're in a relationship with a woman right now, there are probably some good things about that relationship. But I'll tell you, I know, when I come to Christ and when I came to Christ, I had to relearn relationships. And I had to lay down what I thought was a good relationship and start doing relationships God, God's way. So if you are willing to do that, then jump in. The water's fine. Because in the church that I pastored, that's what all of us are going to be doing is laying what we think about relationships on the line for God to mold and to shape. If you're willing to do that, then I'd welcome you. If you're not willing to do that, then I would question whether you're really coming just as you are to the Lord Jesus, who is Lord. That was a great ending. I got the job, by the way. That man that I counseled with, who sat down and told me, that um, he, he told me that when he was six years old, he walked into the kitchen, he told his mother, I'm gay. There's nothing that can change about this. And this is what he told me when we were in counseling. This is not going to change. I have, and I've decided I've, I'm going to stop lying to God about who I really am. Well, I gave him what I could. He left the church. It was actually a pretty ugly situation. He didn't leave well with his, his partner. But, you know, just last year, I was in New York. I was able to get together with him. We were able to reconnect, and uh, we went out and had breakfast together. From the moment he got there, he took out his phone, and he couldn't stop showing me pictures of his wife, whom he married, and his children. This was years later. He had gotten married, and he had three children, and he had so many pictures of them on his phone. He kept trying to show them to me. It was a little annoying. He was like, now look at this one. And I was looking, I was like, yeah, that's the same picture at a little different angle. He said, no, no, but listen, look at this one. I wasn't really annoyed. I was happy for him. But he couldn't stop talking to me about his wife, what his wife did for him. Now, listen, this is the same man who sat right across from me, looked me dead in the eye, and said, I was born this way, and it'll never change. Well, apparently not. Apparently not because of the power of gender operating in his life. And um, I actually should update that slide. It's three kids now. <laughs> so this is what God has given us. He's given us a gift that we can explore and come to grow in intimacy and fruitfulness. 
and, and, and more than that, to come to know and worship him more fully. And I will call it there. Thank you very much. All right. What we will do at this time is if you have a question, what I'd like you to do is go ahead and raise your hand. All right. Aubrey's going to have one. Cameron's going to have one. So interns are going to be running there while they're running there in just a moment. Sam, I'm going to open us up with a question. How can complementarian churches better display the gift of gender in a culture that insists equality equals sameness or on identities outside of the gender binary? So how, how do we... That's a big question. There's that's right, just in like 140 <laughs> characters. So if you could do that. Uh, how, how do we yeah. display it as a gift? Well, um, uh, like we were talking about early, uh, earlier, I, I think what's really important is to understand that there are, these, um, there are these commands in the Bible, and sometimes what people hear in the culture is that Christians are just about prohibiting things from people. And what we have to help people understand by our lives is that gender is a gift. It's something that actually cultivates human fruitfulness. It actually makes us more fruitful. It makes us more intimate. It actually leads us into deeper relationships. Part and parcel of the reason people are having such trouble getting together these days and now. Major much more, many more people are living alone because they're just having trouble having relationships. So I think holding out a, a positive image about how this works and how people, it helps people to flourish, both men and women. And when we can kind of display that, that yeah, we understand and, and the way that we do life shows that women and men are equal, equally made in the image of God. And yet at the same time, that doesn't negate the fact that there's an asymmetry that we have in relationship. I think that's very attractive. Uh, and when people can see that in our lives, in your marriages, you know, in the way that you conduct yourselves in church, um, it just draws people in. So that's one thing I would offer. One more question, and we're turning to Aubrey and Cameron. Uh, then kind of thinking about the First Corinthians passage, is the ultimate way to understand gender through marriage, especially considering that maybe a lot of Paul's context would have been him speaking to men. Many of the women would have been widows, right? If someone were to respond and ask that way, how would you flesh that out? Yeah. Well, not everybody gets married, and as I pointed out earlier, the, the longest passage in the New Testament about marriage is about being single. Um, and singleness is, uh, is something very special before God. So we want to make sure that we hold out that witness of the Scripture. Well, does that mean that gender doesn't matter? No, because even if you're single, you're still meant to be in relationships. There's still other relationships where gender comes into play, and those are brother-sister relationships and familial relationships, and also relationships in the church, brother and sister. One of the primary metaphors for the church in the New Testament is not a business, as you might think from looking at churches today, but the family. Uh, Jesus makes the metaphor of the family, so do the apostles, Peter and Paul. The church is like a family, and so gender... It, relationships are supposed to be growing in the church as well. And so that's where gender comes into play in close relationship. So I would say that for people who do not get married, it's still, um, gender is still important in their relationship, in their close relationships. And that's where they find and explore gender. Uh, it's also the case 
that men and women coming together in marriage have a unique opportunity to show God uh, and image God in a special way. And so God has many of us on that path to learn about masculinity and femininity in a marriage relationship, but it's not, it's not mandatory. How's that? All right. Aubrey's question, and then Cameron, if you have a question after Aubrey, raise your hand, we'll, we'll bring you a mic. Hi, Sam. I'm Aubrey. Nice to meet you. Um, I actually just wanted to ask you if you could go back to the slide. What was the seventh point? I didn't get to write it You're down. You're one of those. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just get your camera out, take a picture. No. I almost did, but then I didn't, yeah, so, so here we yeah, are. Kind of <laughs> okay. Uh, the seventh cool. point was just bringing it back home, that actually the end of all this, and uh, the, the Bible shows us in different ways. Ephesians 5 is one of them, where actually the operation of gender makes for deep relationships. It helps us to grow in intimacy and fruitfulness. And uh, that brings it back to what God wants us to experience from, of himself. Yeah. Thank you. Also, can I ask like a real question? Sorry. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. Um, He's too nice a guy here. Very nice, yes. Books, very kind. Letting people ask you questions. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the passage that we read about the women wearing head coverings in church. Can you like speak on that a little bit? Because obviously... I don't think any woman in here is wearing one, so like, how do we apply that to right now in church? Yeah, yeah if we walked through the passage, and I do actually an engendered, um, what, what you see is that um, Paul is doing a number of things. One of the things is he's teaching us how to engage with our culture, in their case, first century Roman culture. And he was also um, teaching us about deeper principles of gender. And the basic message of that passage, and you can take this message and read it, see if it makes sense to you, but the basic message of the passage is where your, where your culture is affirming truth about gender that, that come to us from Moses, you should embrace what the culture is doing. Where the culture is contradicting truth about gender, you should contradict your culture. What happens in the beginning is that you don't have women speaking in the public assembly. Paul says, no, that doesn't acknowledge that women and men are equally in the image of God. So you should contradict your culture. That's what he says in the beginning. But then he says, as far as the head covering, that's a, a cultural um, artifact of, of first century Rome that's important. And it's saying something good. When men and women go into worship together, um, it's good to distinguish gender. And usually, the way you distinguish gender is through clothing. That's why unisex clothing stores will never catch on, because men and women's clothing are always different. Uh, even if it's slight differences, it's always a difference. And so what Paul is saying, ultimately, the message of the passage is that you should use head coverings in first century Rome, because it says something important about gender in your culture. Now, he wouldn't say that to us today. There are different things that show gender. Maybe something more appropriate would be a wedding ring or something, which, sorry, I'm not, sorry, darling, I'm not wearing. Um, <laughs> but uh, does, that, does that make sense? Now, other questions about that, but that's, uh, that's pretty much the, the passage. Yeah, it does make sense. Cameron. Hi. Uh, hi, Sam. I'm Cameron. Um, I... I hate to say it, but I kind of agree with the one woman after your really great server where I feel like I have more questions after this. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll pick one. Um, one being, 
so you talked about point four, men and women are equal in God's image. And um, even just a few weeks ago, Raymond, you preached on First Peter 4, 10 and 11, talking about those with gifts, those, those with gifts, use them, talking about oracles. Um, and Raymond, you even mentioning that Paul says we're all considered to be oracles of God. Your voice and your words matter. Um, and I guess my first question would be, what's your stance on women preaching in the church? That's the first question, I guess. Yeah. Would you say that women should be permitted to, to preach or be an elder in a church? Yeah, good. So that's a good and, question. And if not, why? That's the question. Good. If, how, are those, how are those both of those things true? Good, good. Well, churches are going to draw, line, draw lines about this differently. And I would say what, what churches should be doing is looking at these principles and trying to draw lines that's best for them in different ways. In my tradition that I come out of, I'm, I'm from the PCA, and in our tradition, we draw the line at women being elders, and that, w- that we reserve eldership for men. And that's taking 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, which says that women should be silent. We, I think the best way to understand that is that there is a time for women to be silent when the prophecies are being judged, so that there is an asymmetry in the way that men are to, to that asymmetry of order. Even though women's voices are very important and women need to be heard, and if they're not, there's something wrong. At the same time, there's also an asymmetry. And so we would draw the line, and I would, I would draw the line there, that in that position, uh, it should be reserved for men as a way for the women of the church to promote them to that place of the firstborn. Can I ask one follow-up question? Sure. So then, how does that? How do you say that to a woman when she comes to you and say, "I, I've been given this gift of speaking, of being an oracle." Um, and Raymond, if you want to answer this as well, that's fine. I've been wanting to ask you about it um, <laughs> since that sermon. It's a great but platform for it. How how do you, sure. how do you tell, how do you respond to a woman who comes up and says, "Hey, I feel like I've been given this gift." The Bible says our voices all matter equally. What do you say to them? Yeah, I'd say that in general, um, gender sometimes trumps gifting in relationship. That if a woman has a gift, just as if a man has a gift, as we follow God and walk with God, there will be ways for God to use that gift. And he will show us that ways. And I think that there should be opportunities in a church for women to use a speaking gift. And so I would, I would look for those and try to cultivate those in the church. Yeah, and I'd just say meaningful contribution doesn't mean sameness in the way that we think of how that contribution is in, uh, exercised in the life of the church. And you think of that in any number of the other gifts, right? So somebody who is very hospitable might never be a deacon or a deaconess. Somebody who's gifted to, to use their words might never end up on stage to be a preacher, whether they're male or female. I'd also point to First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and say what Paul's doing there is a creational argument. So these distinctions aren't a post-fall reality. They're a pre-fall reality, right? The way that God has ordered the world. You can just go see the sermon I preached on that a few years ago. Good. Ray, okay. Ray, Carlos, and then I saw a hand up. William, you have a hand? Okay, I thought I saw William first. So go to 
William, then Ray, then Carlos. That's the order I saw them. I didn't know if you were doing the head thing or a hand thing. I'm always ready for hands. So I have a question that is kind of hard to, hard to word. Um, so do you believe, well, I don't know if you, I thought I would wait to ask it. Do you believe that the Bible teaches that children should be raised by a mother and father? And how do you uh, basically sell, sell that? Should it be what God wants to, like people who aren't married to someone of the opposite sex, say a single person or same sex attracted person in a same sex relationship wants to do surrogacy or um, adopt or get a sperm donor? Okay, if, uh, if I'm understanding your question uh, correctly, it, it sounds like you're saying, do I, do I feel like having a father and mother are important for a child? Is that right? And how do you explain that to somebody who says like, oh, does, do you mean like that? Does that, mean, does that mean you think that everyone raised by a same-sex couple is going to turn out terrible or every person who's raised by a single parent is going to turn out terrible? Because whenever I say that I believe that children should be raised by a mother and father, often I'll get people saying, does that mean you think that all same-sex attracted people are terrible parents or that single people can't be good parents? Yeah. Okay, good, good, good question. Well. I actually find that um, my friends who are same-sex attracted couples are much more reasonable than what you get on television, what you get on the internet. Um, and I can think of a worse fate than a child uh, growing up in a same-sex couple uh, household. Uh, it's, not, it's not the worst thing in the world to have two parents that love a child. I would say, though, it's not the best. And even those who are same-sex couples raising a child, a lot of times they would agree. And that's why any kind of same-sex couple that's worth its salt in parenting, well, very often when a child gets to a certain age, if you have two women, they will try to introduce men into the child's lives. And they will try to say, well, now it's good, and they'll get an uncle or something to come in to try to do it. That's most of the parents that, that I'm aware of, um, that's the way they would handle it. Or vice versa, if you have two men, they're going to they're gonna want some woman in a child's life. And I think that just kind of speaks to what I would say, yeah, I think it's important uh, and it's better for the child to have the both genders speaking into their lives. Um, so it's not always the best situation that we have in the families today. But that's what I would strive for because I think it does give, and until recently in developmental psychology, that's what a developmental psychologist would say about there are different phases that, that a child goes through as they develop, and a, a mother and a father is important in those different phases. That's not talked about recently, but that's, until recently, that was the, the orthodoxy in developmental psychology. And so I would just go with that and say, you know, that's, let's think about that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess. It's a hard question because I know that people who bring this up with me are like obviously very emotionally invested. They might really yeah. long for children. There's they, an assumption that they make on your question too. So just by stating a difference doesn't mean that you've assumed that they're terrible people. And so you can just say that there's no yeah. assumption there. Because just, they, just, they, they want to have children and they feel like there's no way for them to have them normally. You know, So it's really hard to 
tell them like, oh yeah, that's not not the best. Ray Rishti, and yeah. then Los. Do I have? Did I see another? Okay, and then the brother in the back, and that's our last one. Hello, is this thing on? All right. Hi, Sam. Um, what's the deal with Galatians three twenty eight? So Paul's talking about over and over again. We see he's making these important distinctions about gender, and then he says, "In Christ, there's neither male nor female." What gives? Sure. You yeah. guys go to the same church, don't you? Didn't you just like set him up? Like... <laughs> yeah. So. Um... Folks who like to argue against the kinds of things that I'm, I'm uh, arguing for tonight, and they try to make a big deal of that passage and say, oh, see, try, Paul is trying to obliterate all gender distinctions. Well, he's obviously not meaning there's no male and female in any context whatsoever, because you can read the rest of his writings, that there's obviously a difference that he's making in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and a lot of other places uh, in the pastoral epistles as well, where he says there is a difference. So what does that mean? It means, I think it's clear from the context, that in Christ, in our salvation in Christ, there's no difference. That Christ saves men and women equally, and there's, there's really no difference in like the quality of relationship with the Lord. Because they're both, you know, originally in the image of God, they're both fallen, and they're both redeemed equally. So there is not distinction in that regard. In the same way, that he uses the other things in that, in that verse to compare. There's no slave or free, you know, e equally. Uh, there's no barbarian or Scythian. E they all equally have salvation in Christ. That's the way I would read it. Los. Hey. Go Boston. By the way, it's... Nope, nope, don't say it. It's Jimmy Butler. You, you know better. My name is Carlos. Um, the thing gives me the shakes, like, learn is... Um, I would like to know, we live in a time where pride is kind of like the fabric of like our society, and uh, I'm gonna make it quick. Um, how, and we celebrate pride in like the month of June, so I was just wondering, and this is very constant to me, how do I um, talk to somebody and address it? Because I think you made a lot of great points. I just wanna know exactly what other points I can make to say that, hey, pride isn't just like being your authentic self. You can be your authentic self and not be prideful. But I, how do I convey that message to convict someone like in a deeper level as far as just like preaching to them? Because I know if I sound like I'm an evangelist, it's like what you say, we disapprove of gay and lesbian relationship, but we really want to foster relationship. And I'm yeah. glad you had situations where a woman didn't understand or a man who was set his ways changed almost like in like a matter of years got married had kids and he got broke through like how do I get that same breakthrough and how do I like talk to especially a lot of women because it's more common with women than men so if I want to like, have a relationship and I have a problem with this how do I get a breakthrough and make her like, kind of like create a change without having to change her as a woman. And I know how women are like emotionally charged. So how do I do that without stepping on eggshells? Yeah. Well, if I understand what you're, what you're asking about relating to people, um, 
I, I would say that one of the great things we have as a Christian, as Christians, is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which the Bible tells us was sent into the world to convict the world of sin. So it really is the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin. It's not really our job. So you don't have to take that job on to make sure that people know you disapprove of their lifestyle. It doesn't really have to come up. If, you're, if you are reaching out and being a friend with someone, you know, you're following in the way of Christ. Jesus did not think it was important that he had to make sure everybody knew where they were sinning and where they weren't. That's not really your job. If they ask you, you can talk about it and do it in a way that's respectful about your convictions. And I hope some of the things might be helpful that I've said tonight. But I would say you're on the right track in that you want to reach out and have a relationship with folks, um, but it's not your job to make sure they know that you disapprove of what they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. Ron, your name, brother? Eric. Eric, all right, your question, your last one. Yeah, I believe Christ was very adamant on the unity and oneness of the body. And given that I think that the body of Christ is very divided today because everyone has their varying opinions on plenty of different matters, where does the concept of gender, and I know it's very deep and many different facets to it, but where do you think gender fits in kind of a agreeable way to divide the church, given that we see churches currently being divided over various elements of this topic. And do you believe that that is a, given that Christ was, he thought that it was extremely important the body is united and one, that this is an actual topic where a line should be drawn and that that is something that God calls us to. Uh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I would say if we take a step backwards, uh, we should note that in every time and place, God has the church in a cultural situation in which there are going to be flashpoints with the culture, ways in which uh, the church goes, is, just can't go along with what the culture is going and then there are some parts of the church that are going to acquiesce and I think not be faithful to the scriptures and that. And so how do we, we deal with that? I think that we need to be charitable in our judgments. There are people who are um, trying to serve Christ, but I would not agree with where they're going. Um, so my, my hope, though, is to be able to explain why this is good, why what God says is good, and, and that's where I'm hoping to make progress uh, with folks uh, so that they... But, but I do think, you know, Jesus leaves these flashpoints uh, in order to challenge the church. And in every culture and every time, boy, there are times, there are going to be ways in which people are suppressing the truth of God and some truth and affirming other truths of God. And... Uh, we want to we call ourselves to be faithful. How do we deal with churches that we feel are not being faithful? I think with charity. Um, how, how important would I gauge this issue? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I know. It sure seems pretty important to me. Uh, it sure seems that we lose a lot when we give up the gift of gender, and we are losing a lot. 
and, it's, and we're paying the price in people's relationships. So I feel like it's pretty important. Um, would I not cooperate with another church that doesn't acknowledge gender in some social good? I don't, I don't know. You know, I'd have to think it through. It's a good question. Yeah. Would you all help me thank Sam for his time here? Thank you. Thank you very much. We have uh, one, two other pastors who came in, Scott Wright, Ben O'Toole. So our members, I'm just always directing you to the pastors, encourage them. They labor in our area. We have the rare privilege tonight. Stan Gale is a prolific author. Champ Thornton is a prolific author. Sam's an author. Christchurch people, you get their books at our Connection Center, so you can come ask them questions from things you didn't understand. They'll do a private reading tonight if you'd like. So you can come gather one of them. They'd love to, to meet you, but their ministry here is beyond the pulpit. They've written for us. So thank you, brothers, here. Uh, if you are uh, not familiar with our SNT calendar, next month Stan will be teaching us. And in the month of July, Diane Langberg uh, will be with us as well. So we'd love to have you back here uh, for more of that information. You can find it on just one of the blue cards right outside of the tunnel there. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then you're free to roam around the cabin. Father, we thank you so much uh, for nights like tonight where we can come and study together, look at your word, think theologically together. We thank you for Sam exhorting us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to, to think well as we try to not only learn but to minister to the people who you have placed in our respective spheres of life, people who are asking questions that have eternal consequence, people who are asking questions that will practically affect their lives for the rest of their lives. We pray, Father, that you would give us a spirit of compassion and patience, of long-suffering and forbearance, and that you would indeed help us to be people who are firm in what the Scripture says, that we would be honest and truthful, that we would be courageous in those moments when we do have to draw a line or take a stand or communicate a hard truth, and that you would help us to know the difference between when we are asking questions, listening, and learning, and when we should be speaking. That is often so difficult for us as we minister to people who disagree with us. Yes. Father, we thank you for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are reminded that uh, we're not alone in this, that as people have gathered here this evening, that there are other brothers and sisters in this church and other churches who are seeking to apply the Scripture to this topic. We pray, Father, that you would help us to, to find encouragement as we look around the room tonight and perhaps find friends that would be good dialogue partners for us as we seek to evangelize, as Carlos reminded us, or as we seek to answer practical questions, as William reminded us, for people who are wondering about things like adoption and what is it, how does that apply to their sexuality. Lord, we thank you for Sam and his hard work. We pray that you would give him endurance and faithfulness in the pastorate, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.